Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. Welcome to today's episode of Empowered Returns. I am your host, P.T. Weinberg, founding partner at Charles Gate. We are down uh, Mike DeMella today, but that does not matter because we are here with Ralph Parent, um, managing partner of Parent and Diamond Real Estate Development Firm in Boston, fellow BC Eagle, fired up to have Ralph with us today. What's going on, man? Doing very well. How about yourself, PT? Great. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Well, let's just, uh, let's jump right into it. Let's jump right in. Okay. So you're a local guy. You grew up in Brookline, yep. right? Public housing in Brookline, which obviously pretty affluent community, mm-hmm. right? And then you earned a scholarship to Boston College uh, playing football Kind of tell us about that experience growing up in Brookline, then heading off to BC. Obviously, athletics were a huge part of your life growing up, not just football, and sort of how all that kind of shaped you and eventually led you down this career track that is your your current real estate career. I moved in Brookline in 1987 when I was seven years old. Two traumatic experiences prior to that. House burned down before, roof caved in on another house. And then that's when Brookline Housing came in and said, we're going to take your family in. So that was my first experience, wow. you know, coming into Brookline. From there, um, went to the Brookline Public Schools. The teachers are awesome. Um, really watched over me, made sure that I, that I, I, I um, caught up, you know, to where I needed to be coming from, you know, my background. Um, and I did very well and I excelled. Eventually, I did get my scholarship at Boston College and worked really hard on the SATs to get the necessary scores. And then, of course, I became an Eagle. Um, I was a redshirt freshman. I uh, started um, I started for three years at the safe, uh, free safety position. Um, and then from there, I moved on. But education in Brookline was great. Cool. All right. We'll get, we'll, maybe at the end, we'll talk a little football because I always Sounds like to good. hear those stories. But Sounds good. Uh, talk about you get out of BC, you're looking for a career track. How do you get into real estate and kind of walk us through your, your career track from inception to where you are now as a managing partner at uh, Parent and Diamond? Great question. So I get out of BC and I'm trying to find my way. You know, my whole life has been athletics up until that point. So I started off in sales positions, selling mortgages. Um, I went into the printing industry uh, where I was recruiting people in the printing industry before the digital world really kicked in. Um, Then I went into entrepreneurship. I started my own um, uh, strength and conditioning company for teenagers. That went really well until a gentleman by the name of John DiBiazzo, I pitched him uh, to train his students and he said, I'd rather hire you you know, as a phys ed teacher, and you can be one of my coaches. So that started my coaching career at Everett High School. Received my teacher's degree, taught there, coached there for three years. At the same time, I started real estate, and that's when I had my real estate license. Um, And then, you know, between uh, teaching, coaching, renting, you know, apartments to folks, um, then I then I uh, left Everett. Then I started teaching in Brookline. I wanted to come back home and teach at Brookline High School. Cool. Did the same thing. Taught physical education and health there. Coached football there as well. Sold real estate at the time. Uh, but then finally I realized that my real estate career is picking up a little bit faster than being a teacher. 
So I decided in 2010 that I was going to get out of the teaching industry, and I've been in real estate ever since. And then you got smart and went into the development part of the real estate business. So kind of talk about how that progression happened, started with, you know, singles and two families, and obviously you're working on bigger multifamily projects now. So um, kind of talk about how you went from that sort of brokerage foundation and then sort of jumped into the, the development end of the business. Sure. It started when I purchased my first three family in 2012. And again, my real estate business for sales part was still picking up. And then eventually I started speaking with folks who are in development. So I said, you know, tell me about that business. So I started doing consultation. When it started with consultation, then I went into permit expediting because I realized that I know many people in government. I know people at ISD, people in ZBA. Ralph, I have a problem getting these permits. All right, what do you need to do? So I would sit before the ZBA and I would present projects, you know, to the ZBA and I'd get projects approved. Then that moved into, let's come work with me on this project. And I learned development from there. My first opportunity was with the city of Boston through the former Department of Neighborhood, Devel Department of Neighborhood Development, which is now the mayor's office of housing. I developed two two-family homes and I continued developing, you know, from there. Mm -hmm. Once you realize, what I realized was running a business, running a life, you, you're building your family, you know, it's really tough. So I went, I pulled back a little bit from development. I still, I started doing more consultation because it's a heavy lift to do development. So now I'm doing consultation uh, for development. I'm still doing my brokerage. That's how I keep my business going. Up until three years ago, um, you know, I, I partnered with my literally, you know, baseball coach, who is now my business partner and my mentor, Merrill Diamond. So Merrill has a long history, you know, in Brookline, over 40 years developing real estate. And, you know, at the time, his former business partner, Nick Sinakori, was retiring. Yeah. He said, Ralph, yeah. I've been mentoring you through this whole development thing. You know, I'm looking for a partner. Would you like to work with me? I'm like, absolutely. So... From three, three years ago, I went from developing one, two, and three family homes, and then I jumped to my first project, which was a 61-unit project in downtown Salem called Bricks. So I came in halfway through that project, and immediately I learned what it takes to build a very, very large building. Yeah. You know, all the while, you know, I'm attending all marketing meetings, construction meetings, financing meetings learning the business, doing pro formas, understanding, you know, why a project works versus not, um, uh, doing presentation for our joint venture. And I'll speak about them in a little bit later. They're, that's a company called Urban Spaces. Yeah, yeah. And I really learned, you know, the the the, the larger scale real estate, larger scale multifamily, you know, world yeah. from Merrill and Urban Spaces. Okay, so getting to touch all those different facets of the yep. bigger scale development, what's your favorite part? What's my favorite part? Looking at proformas and understanding the story behind a project. So finding the project, figuring out is the price per square foot sellable makes sense. Does the rentable numbers make sense? And if it does, okay, let's go to the next phase. Let's start looking at, you know, the gross square footers, the sellable square footers, the net. And then from there, figuring out if the project makes sense. And then at that point, that's when you really start to pull back and start focusing on, all right, let's really dive into this project. So 
you know, I would say it's really finding out if the project works yeah. is the is the fun part for me. All right. So you enjoy kind of the, the, the feasibility analysis, the underwriting. Right. And getting going. Because okay. what I learned, what I learned, because I came in 50% through bricks was everything was kind of on autopilot at that point. The construction meetings were at the same time. The, the, the marketing meetings were at the same time. The strategy was kind of in place because, you know, it, it was just a, a moving train, whereas before... It's like you're figuring out, does the project work or not? How many projects do we go through on a daily basis or on a weekly basis when we do our pipeline calls to see if the project works? I don't know how many projects we throw away. Yeah. Well, what do you think but, the hit rate is? I mean, I think that's a great question oh, for people to know, like, as someone who's actively developing right One in now, 10. One in 10. Yeah. So, okay. It's really not that. It's, it's, it's for smaller projects, what I've learned for smaller projects, one, twos, and threes, where there's more turnover, mm-hmm. then you know the, the the numbers increase. But larger scale projects, where you know if you're putting up deposits to hold off for a year, where you go through entitlements, if you're going through you know architecture, I mean architecture, um, uh, engineering. Like once you start really putting money into this, it's like you're in it now, and like you're looking at the end game now. How do I pull this money out? Right. You know, after we finish this project. So that's why it's the feasibility that really attracts me because yeah. I want to know, does this work? Because, you know, larger projects, larger risk, greater returns. You know, let's let's cut right to it, right? Sure. Like, obviously, DEI is a huge, huge hot button topic mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. right? So you were kind of like ahead of the curve on DEI way back in 2015, you know, with the the building a building program right. on the first project we worked on together. Um, and, and I want you to talk about that and maybe how that was just sort of like a tiny nugget that sort of led to where you are now, where this is just a major focal point, sort of what DEI means to you and how you're kind of looking at it from a strategic standpoint as you grow Parent Diamond. Okay. So we'll start with the DEI part, then we'll jump back to building a building because they, they work very close. Yeah. To okay, cool. So, Perfect. I move out of Brookline, um, which is predominantly white. Yep. Then I, I move. I live in Brookline. <laughs> a lot of white dudes. Cool. <laughs> so then I move in. I move into Dorchester now. And what I noticed is that is the I've only moved ten miles away, and the difference in what is happening. So there are a lot of minority folks who, you know, are looking for jobs, looking for opportunity. And if I take my car to go into Brookline, it's a different landscape. So it was very clear to me living on both sides, Brookline and then Dorchester. So now let's start looking at jobs. So I'm in real estate now and I'm doing consultation. And I see that the folks that are really building the single family homes or two family homes are black and Latino folks. But when you start to get into downtown Boston, you get into the seaport, it's all white folks. It is like... Huh, this is really interesting. Like, why is it that, you know, there's this these two different worlds? Okay. So then it started to become all right, how do I bridge the two? And that's one of my gifts, I, I truly believe, is that, you know, I've been on both sides. I've lived in Brooklyn, I've lived in Boston, I've I've had a great education. I went to Boston College. You know, I can throw on a suit and tie and blend right in, figuratively speaking. But I can also go into, you know, other areas with, with jeans and boots on. Right. And I'll blend right in. So I can chameleonize myself into, you know, in in in, in my terms, I, I would say I can code switch very, very well. That's a, I, that chameleonize is a, is a word? 
I don't know. I just made it up. It's awesome because I always I love that analogy. I'm using it anyways. It's a word now. We're using awesome. it as a word, but it's a that's an awesome but word. Okay. We can we can yeah. chameleonize. We can code switch. Yeah. And I I do I've I learned how to do that living in Brookline, living in Boston. So that's one of my gifts. Okay. So now let's go back into business. And I said, you know what? As I'm building my brokerage business, as I'm building my development business, I want to start taking folks that are in Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, and I want to start bringing them into the suburbs of where I've worked. And because I've all, all I see is black and brown folks working on single family homes, two family homes, and three family homes. There's a problem with that. But here's here's something that really caught my attention that kind of bothered me was um, in Mattapan. I forgot uh, I forgot how long ago, but there was a big hospital type clinic that opened up. And then the folks that were building it in the black community or black and brown community were not black and brown folks. It was white folk. Now, to me, that was a problem because I'm like, hold on. So we can't, we don't, we get the smaller jobs and we can't, we don't go to other neighborhoods. But when the bigger jobs are in our neighborhood, white folks come in to our neighborhoods. Now, how do we bridge this gap? So I see the problem I don't like to focus too much on the problem. I'm going to acknowledge it, but I'm going to start working on solutions. We can talk about some of the solutions that, you know, I've thought about and what I've tried to implement in my personal practice moving forward when it comes to real estate. Now, that's the adult side. Let's take it back to building a building. So building a building was a program where I combined my real estate experience and my teaching experience. Now, Working in the Everett Public Schools and then crossing over working in the Brookline Public Schools, you see the differences between the two school yeah, systems. Totally. So I said, you know what? I need to find a development that's really close to a high school. And it happened to be 1501 Com Ave. Perfect. So near and dear to my heart, our first big multifamily project. Awesome. Yeah. So project. I spoke with, again, Meryl Diamond. And I said, Meryl, let's think about a program where we start teaching kids about real estate. But here's what the focus is going to be. Not so much real estate, not, not, not so much the industry, but all the different professions that are within the industry. That's what I want to focus, because what I've learned from high schoolers is they say, Mr. Parent, I've sat in a class now for six hours a day for six months out of the year. Nine months, excuse me. And what are we doing this for? Well, Here's what you're doing it for. You're building these skills so that you can use them later on in life. So we created this program where architects, civil engineers, structural engineers, um, um, geotech engineers, plumbers, tradesmen, carpenters would all show up. And I went to the uh, principal at the time, Dr. Tutwiler, and you know, went to the front door and I said, I'd like to speak with the principal. And I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, I've got a program for you. And um, here's what I want to do. And he loved the idea. And his first question was, how much does it cost me? I said, it's free. Here's what I want. I want a classroom and I want to speak with some teachers and I want their students so I can implement this program and it's free for you. He goes, all right, cool. So he's got me, he got me in contact with a couple of guidance counselors, a couple of teachers. And we ran a two-year program at Brighton High School, where there was a group of 40 kids, and we explained the real estate development life cycle from, you know what, this building that you're sitting in, this chair that you're sitting in, this was someone's idea. It started in their mind. They wrote it down on a piece of paper. They had professionals come in and really, you know, 
put a model around it. Yeah. Then that model was known as construction documents, and they gave it to a team to build it. And here you are sitting, you know, when you press on the bubbler, you know, there's a whole, there's engineering behind that that puts water, you know, that sends water from the bubbler to you. Yeah. So we took that program, and then while 1501 was being built, we then we did in-class study with the kids. Then we took them on site to show them these are the guts of the building. You know, this was in the rough phase. And yeah. this, you know, there was electrical, there was plumbing happening at that time. So, you know, again, when I look at integration, I say, here's what you're in school for. You're learning these things to apply them now. I mean, you're to apply them later. Right. But you have to learn them now and build on those skills because this is what it's going to take to make it to this level. And at that point, that's when the students started realizing that, you know, this is what I'm, you know, learning this for. So um, I would definitely say that when it comes to me, it's, it's about integration. It's about people coming together and working together for a common good. I can I can speak easily about the black experience. I can speak very easily about the white experience. And those no, there's no racial undertone around it. Yeah. But it's simply, how do we bring each other together? Because I'm not saying anything that people don't see. That it, it is what it is. Yeah. All right, so yeah. how do we fix it? Right. That's okay. my, that's so what like I do. One thing that's been, you know, implemented as, you know, kind of, I, I would say, an early adopter to, you know, a, a lot of what's, you know, now really, again, becoming uh, more prevalent and at the forefront of a lot of discussions and a lot of policy uh, as it pertains to DEI is the mass support model. Yes. Um, and, and you know, you've talked a lot about that with me in the past. Can you just kind of run through that a little bit, educate our audience on on sort of what that is, why it's important, and how it can be tweaked and improved just in general and how you're doing those things, you know, with the Massport model in mind as you grow Parent and Diamond and, and as you look at each of your projects? Sure. So the Massport model, and I'm not exactly sure when it started, but the Omni Hotel that's in the seaport now, that was the first Massport model project. Okay. So um, Massport owns a lot of land. And when they put RFPs out to build these skyscrapers, you know, there was not concrete, there was no concrete diversity, equity, and inclusion language that were in that, that were that were inserted into the, the the RFP packet. So this was the first project where I said for the development life cycle through ownership, pre-construction, construction, ongoing management, we want to see diversity across men, women, minority, across all fields. A lot of uproar from the traditional developer group. You can't impose this on us. This is not right. You're going to penalize us. Well, if you want the RFP, this is what you're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. So that um, that first project really showed if folks really came together, there are folks, minority folks, who can invest in these projects. There are minority folks who can be part of the construction crew, you know, building these buildings and ongoing management as well. So that was kind of like the jump start. And what I really like about the Massport model, and there are some parts that are really difficult about it, and there are some parts that I don't necessarily agree with. But a change needs to happen. The traditional way of building real estate, people would have just continued with it. And folks would have continued to build. Folks on the other side would be like, opportunity is not there for us. Right. But the Massport model said, we're going to jumpstart this. So when I look at it, you know, for the things that I don't necessarily agree with, with the Massport model, I'm in the private industry, so I can make those changes. Right. So my focus for Parents and Diamond is... Minority inclusion in real estate development. 
um, working with other established white construction, you know, cons consultation uh, development companies. And how do we do that in a productive way that we all work together? Again, the bottom line being reached. Right. You know, okay. that, that's yeah. the key. Yeah. Uh, can you give a couple of examples of how you created some opportunity for Parent and Diamond and your partners? Okay. You know, via the Massport <clears throat> model specifically or, you know, sort of derivations of it that you've, you know, brought into, again, your kind of private business? Sure. Uh, I think maybe two or three years ago, you know, something really, I mean, it bothered many people when there was a, a Boston Globe report that, you know, the the average um, wealth of black and brown folks was like dollars or something like that. I'm like, this is unreal. But like, but it's true. It's like, that's just what it is. So I said, you know what? I'm in real estate development right now. I work with very smart individuals, very affluent individuals who know how to manage this process. So... One part, as you know, BT, about real estate development is that you need to capital raise. So, you know, working with urban spaces right now, through my partner, through my business partner, Merrill, there's a project that we're doing in Brookline right now. It's a very upscale project. And I spoke with Paul Onyabeni, who is the, the, the GP of the deal. And I said, here's what I want to do. You know very well about the Massport model through me, but I don't want to do it in the in the in the say how the public I mean excuse me, the public sector public sector says you have to do it. I want to do it in the private sector where we have more control of how we do it. And here's here are my ideas. First thing I want to do is I want to create a minority investment group. So Paul, if I if I if I raise a certain amount of money, will you allow for my group to be able to invest in your project? Yes. Now, when I say group, Pete, I want to be something. When I, when I, when I say minority group, I'm, I'm coming from the lens of an African-American who has seen, um, you know, the average uh, uh, familial wealth, $8. Right. But my group is not exclusive of other people. It is an all-inclusive group. White, black, brown, peach, everyone's included. But the spirit of it is for black and brown folks who look like me because— that because I, I know what it feels like to be black, of course, but I also want to see generational wealth, you know, be created within the black and brown community. So I'm starting my first syndication, you know, on this project. Yes. And I'm happy to say that I've had one investor meeting so far. And through my BC, you know, former my brothers on the BC, you know, football team. I'm like, guys, I've got this great project now that I'm working on in, in Brookline. And, you know, I'm looking for investors. Are you interested? Like, yeah, we've been looking for these opportunities, but the ceiling is so high to get in. Right. I was able to raise close to $2 million. That's awesome. Off of, uh, call it one meeting, which had about 30 folks in it and about 10 phone calls. And I haven't even marketed. Yeah. I just simply went to people who are in my inner circle. So that's the investment part. Now, on this same project, I had a long conversation with Paul, and I'm like, Paul, these are your group of contractors that you normally work with, and they do incredible work. But have you looked at other minority general contractors um, that do good work as well? Like, Ralph, I really don't know that many. Right. Okay, let me introduce you to, to a couple of guys. This is a gentleman by the name of Greg Jady, who does great work in the city of Boston. I mean— Greg's the man. He did, did our office he did back it? in 2008. Yeah. So he's yeah. like incredible so. work. He's done work in the seaport. He's done hospitality work where, where 
You know, this is very precise. And, you know, people in the hospitality industry, they really want things to look a certain way. I'm like, give Greg a shot. But here's what I, here's what I don't want. Do not give him the opportunity. I want you to put him in the same bucket as every other contractor and vet him out that way. Yeah. Um, if he gives you, if he shows you the plan, gives you the best quality, the best price, I want you to grade him the same way that you would grade everyone else because that's how it should be. But don't exclude him because, you know, one, he's minority or two, you haven't really met him. Now, right. now you know him. Yeah. So I'm happy to say that Greg went through a vigorous process. I was part of all of the meetings. I, I saw what other teams went through and I saw how Greg was interviewed. Everything was above board. And I give kudos to Paul because he's never worked with a minority company. And I would say in, in a, um, I would say in my, on smaller projects, he's worked with minority companies, but a project like this, I don't believe so. Yeah. And Greg earned the position. And I put an emphasis on earned. Yeah. Paul did not give that position to him. And I know he didn't because that was part of those meetings. So it's, it's when I look at Parents of Diamond again, bringing companies together, minority companies, white-owned companies, Kudos to Paul for being open-minded, for his heart being open to working, you know, with, with someone who he hasn't worked with before, but has a great reputation, who has the resume to show that I've done this kind of work before. Yeah, no, Greg's That's, been, they had an awesome track record and great guys. Mm -hmm. um, his cousin Bob's still big part of it, <laughs> yeah, right? That yeah. guy's, that guy's Bob the man. White. Bob White's the best. Yeah. Uh, I hope they listen to this. I can't wait to kind of reconnect with those guys in this project. So let's talk a little bit about this project, right? Sure. This is an exciting project. Um, you know, as you had referenced earlier with your career trajectory, like this is a bigger one, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about this project and, and sort of why you think it was so, um, people were so receptive when you went out for your fundraising meetings and, um, why you and, 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 and Merrill at, at, at Parent and Diamond, you know, decided to invest in this and, and sort of what you see for this project specifically and, and, um, you know, how that's kind of a nice springboard for what you guys are up to at moving forward here. Awesome. Thank you. So first is Brookline. I mean, Brookline speaks for itself. It overlooks the Brookline Reservoir, 10 minutes away from downtown Boston, 10 minutes away from Boston College, you know, five minute ride to, you know, to the Brookline Club. And like, you're in a central location in Fisher Hill. So a very, very well-known, you know, hyper affluent section of Brookline. That's just what it is. So, you know, many of my teammates, of course, you know, going to BC, they know of Brookline already and they know of Brighton. They know what's been happening in this. I mean, they're a little bit removed, right. but they know what's happening. So when I reached out and I said, you know what, there's a really nice project that we're working on right now, 50,000 square feet um, of, of real estate that's being developed, 12 very incredible, you know, townhomes, approximately 3,000 to 3,300 square feet each, three levels, two car garage, private uh, uh, pool, you know, for the for the residents, you know, it's like, Ralph, tell us a little bit more. Well, here's the thing. So I'm working on this with Paul right now. There's a lot that I need to learn, but I'm going to continue to learn it. But here's what I do know. Paul is allowing me to create this investment group. Do you want to be part of it? Yes. Like, what's the minimum? I'm not going to say what the minimum is right now, but um, they want to be part of it. So um, that's the project. It's very excited. And there's more. There's more. There's I can't really speak about them right now because they're still in entitlement right, right. now. Yeah. But there are more projects coming up. And so when I prepare my group and I'm getting them excited about, listen, 
There were for sale projects that we're looking at. There's rental projects that we're like, here are the tax implications on one project versus the other project. Here's the, here's the generation of wealth that we can build. Like these are things that, these are conversations that, um, you know, the circles that I go, we don't really have these type of conversations before. So to be able to speak about these things, to be able to speak of these opportunities is great. And this is what the foundation of our company is. And this is why I really push for diversity because it's great on both sides. Yeah. And and I think, you know, something that we haven't just kind of codified with the audience that I, it, it's clear from what you're saying, but I just kind of want to put a bow on it. Right. It's like the mass port model is all well and good. Like, oh, you know, we got to have a certain amount of minority contractors in there, you know, banging nails and shit. But like what you're talking about is addressing the wealth gap, right? So yep. you're getting people involved and in, 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 into these projects, you know, in the investment partnerships, right? Mm-hmm. On a principal level, really stuff that's going to move the needle right. as, as far as, you know, financial security, stability, growth, all those things. And is it fair to say that that's kind of a, 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 a sort of progression that you're taking in your private business model from the Massport model, which is like, hey, look, it's not just about having, you know, more laborers, you know, of black and brown color or, you know, a certain amount of, you know, women working on the site or whatever it is. But you're really saying, you know what, look, it goes beyond that. Like we're really talking about equality with wealth building. Right. Yeah. So PT, let me offer this. So the way I look at things is, you know, with the Massport model, I'm not... I use it as a, I use it because it's a talking point. People understand that, but I have my own personal, you know, goals. I'm not only looking to change, you know, people's minds. I'm looking to change people's hearts to get them to understand that there are folks out there that have, that do great quality work, that are punctual, on time, on budget, that can get it done. But a very big part of, a very big part that I understand is that there are certain hurdles and levels that you need to be able to cross into to take part in some of these big league jobs. Like for example, bonding, you know, back office infrastructure, laborers, like all these, like a lot of minority folks, which I've, which I've seen is they're not working on the business, they're working in the business. And so I like to create partnerships. You have a, you know, a white owned established company and there is a minority company here that needs a little bit of assistance. Do not give. I'm not, I don't want you to give, but I want you to partner and work with to help. Cause you'll start to notice that there's a lot of value here on this side, that being the minority side that you have not, that you, you're not exposed to one. Cause you don't, you haven't asked Two, you don't know what to ask. So, you know what? I'm bridging the gaps yeah. to say, you know what? Interview, have a great conversation. How do we work together? But here's what I'm not going to say. Give an opportunity. You're not going to get that from me. I'm going to say, you know what? Offer. Offer an opportunity to talk and figure out how we can add value to each other's businesses and each other. What's the biggest problem that you see in our marketplace, right? A lot of people talk affordability. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, cost of construction, cost of capital these days. Like, what are the biggest sort of impediments, you know, to, to the market right now, to your company, and then kind of, you know, how are you going to overcome, how do you ID them, how are you going to overcome them, and then where do you see Parent and Diamond in a year, three years, five years? Okay. So definitely affordable housing is, is a very, very big problem. I mean, when it's, when it's sucking up 60% of your income, 
you know, if not more. And it's like, that's a problem. So we really need to focus on the affordable housing. And there are folks who are for and for and against, you know, the 20 percent or going from 13 percent to 20 percent. I'll tell I'll tell you what I am for. it. We are in a problem right now. Now, for the past decade, you know, when interests were low and everyone was building, everyone was making money. There was not really a problem. But here we are. We have a problem and we need to fix this problem. So we need to take drastic measures. We can't just, you know, you know, take a couple of steps here. We need drastic measures to actually hone this in to make Boston more affordable. My personal opinion. Now, aside from that, um, the Builders of Color Coalition, advocacy group for minorities in the city of Boston for, you know, for, for entry into commercial real estate. I was part of a six-month affordable housing intensive. Um, POA, um, many of the CDCs, um, Nixon Peabody, I believe, um, what they, they sent a couple of attorneys. Um, there were many folks that really taught us the process about, uh, about affordable housing. Um, I don't want to get too, too deep into it because it can really, um, it can become a black hole. But um, we as a government need to figure out how to make afford affordable housing a little bit easier for the developers. Yeah, give me it's, that anecdote. Like if I was trying to entitle a market rate project, it takes X amount of time. And then if it's an affordable project, it was taken Y amount of time. And just about that delta, that was staggering. The, the, the entitlement part is actually the same. Right. That's not the problem. It's, it's the capital stack and how do you fund it. So on a private deal, once you go through entitlement, you know, you get your investors, you get your debt, and you start the project. But on the affordable side, there are so many, you know, um, um, levels of financing, so many soft debt partners that are part of the project to make it affordable. Having to go from the federal government to DHCD, and then that money spreads across, and then you have all these different entities that are going to put in $750,000 here. I'll put a million dollars here, but here are my restrictions for my money. And it's like, hold on. So if I built bricks, a 61-unit building that can take, you know, call it three years, three and a half years, and get it fully, you know, occupied, that same building can take like five years in affordable housing. And I'm like, it's the same exact building. But that's the problem with affordable housing is, you know, many folks look at it as it's the developer's fault. Actually, no. It's like there's a whole there's a whole labyrinth of just stuff that you need to do just to get the building built. And then when you get the building built, then the consumer or the end user has to go through miles of paperwork just to get the unit. And I've learned this in the past six months of doing affordable housing. Yeah. I'm like, goodness, like this is really, this is why private developers, they stay with private. And this is why affordable housing, you know, companies and developers, they stay with affordable housing because they know that industry. One last part that I want to add about, you know, affordable housing. A lot that's happening in the city right now. One thing that I'd like to see, and I don't know, I'm not sure if Boston has it, but if there's a bonus system, you know, if you're going to put up a new construction building, you know, if the developer proposes, you know what, I want to build affordable housing, and if I can get a bonus of 20%, you know, to the gross of the building, and that'll be affordable housing units. I'd like to see something like that. Yeah. We need to start raising- yeah, There has to be a give and take, right? If you're going to go from 13% affordable to 20% affordable units, you've got to do a bonus for density right. and or height, something. A, we need more housing, right? We right. need more units. Right. 
And B, if you want to build more affordable housing, but you're going to keep the sort of envelopes of the approvals the same, it just, these deals can't pencil, right? right. Especially in this interest rate environment and construction cost environment. And, you know, I think that you're onto something there and, and, and hopefully as, you know, all these talks progress and these policies start to unfold, we'll see some of that yeah. because, you know, that's, that, that's our biggest issue is inventory. Yeah. And I know that's, you know, you're coming from a, a, a development guy, right? Oh, build, build, build. But like, all BS aside, right? Like if we don't bring any meaningful amount of new housing to market, we're never going to even scratch the surface on the affordability crisis. Right. right. So, um, all right. So I guess, you know, good segue. If you had unlimited, but if you had unlimited money, but only one year, what would you do to kind of, you know, stem the tide on the affordable situation? Unlimited budget in one year, I would work with the city of Boston to figure out the unlimited money part would simply go to affordable housing. That's where it would go. The market rate, well, the market side will figure, I mean, the private side will figure out a way to continue to build around all the policy. That's not a problem. But we need to work with city government, state government, federal government. How do we get the money flowing faster and to bypass all this time of, of, of um, you know, I'm going to give you 750 but you need to give me this. You need to give me that. I'm like, no, it's like, we have a problem we need to solve. Like right now, I don't have time to sit here and like look at three different or, or six different, you know, um, um, funding sources and everyone has different rules. Right. And then I've got to, you know, change my building to, we need to build housing. It's yeah. like, it's not that difficult. So that the, the, the money part, I would just, you know what, throw everything at the table and let's just figure out how to fix it. All right. So where do you see uh, Parent Diamond in, you know, three years, five years, like where, where do you want this to go? Where do I want this to go? We're going to continue with what we're doing right now, focusing on wealth creation, you know, on the investment sides. I'm going to continue to bridge gaps between white-owned companies, minority companies to build a better Boston. That's what I'm going to continue to do. I'm not focusing on developments and how many buildings that I can put up or how many units that I'm going to, you know, build that's really not my focus. My focus is how do we take minority companies to help their businesses grow? When those businesses grow, you'll start to notice that other minorities will be hired. Their businesses can grow together and you'll actually see more collaboration between minority businesses and white owned businesses and everyone businesses can grow. That's the whole key. We can't have all the businesses on the white side and all the laborers on the minority side. It just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, we need black owned, brown owned business owners, women business owners to help, you know, our city grow. Cool. All right. Got to get, uh, we promised the audience, right? Got to get a little football in here. Not a problem. You know, it's off season right now. There's a lot of, lot of stuff happening. Um, what's your most memorable moment? BC My football. most memorable moment, I forgot the year. That's awful. Maybe 2002, Notre Dame at their place. Um, that was a tough game. You know, 14-17. I mean, that was a pure defensive game. Offenses were working really well. Both defenses were just stopping. Was that when they were unbeaten? That, that's when they came out with the lime green yeah, shirts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. like, they came out pregame with, like, their normal, you know, yeah. golden blue, and they came out with, like, some lime green and go- – oh Yeah, no, no, I think – yeah, I kind of remember that and game. And so yeah. that, that was, like – that was that was a tough game. 
we rallied together. You know, when it when that was the best part of athletics. The best part of athletics is is the teamwork and yeah. the strategy and looking into each other's eyes and saying, you know what? We are here to win. Forget about all the problems that are happening in the world right now. This is our problem right now is to beat this team, this Notre Dame team at their place. Let's just do it. And we won 14-7. So that was like, that was the most memorable game. All right. I wrote down the answer and we have, I've not asked you this question. It's not rigged and I better, I better be right here. Who's the best player you ever played against in college? I wouldn't say that it wouldn't be fair to pick out one person, but here's what I will say. That Miami team that sent, I think, like six or seven first-rounders, whatever that year was, that was the toughest team to play. Um, if, I, if I remember correctly, I mean, there's these, these are years I played a lot of guys, but it was like Jeremy Shockey, Ed Reed was on the team, Warren, uh, 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 Warren Sapp wasn't on the team. Um, Vince Wilfork was a backup, I think, that year. Like, that's how strong that team was. Um, Willis McGahee. I mean, this is like old Big East like football that oh, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. I can't re I can't remember all because I played against so many greats. Um, but that year was a really tough year where it's like almost their whole first team went on the first round of the NFL. Yeah. Like that's big time football. For sure. All right. I thought I thought I thought for sure you were. Who'd you think? Who'd you think? Mike Vick was definitely, well, no, no, no. Mike, he was so sick in college. You know, like, yeah. I, Mike Vick, I had a, 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 a miss sack sack against Mike Vick. That's my one claim of fame. Yeah. Him. I did sack him once. That guy's a phenomenal player. Yeah, he I, was I, such I, an athlete. I, he was so fast. It was, it was a different type of, yeah. it was a different type of an athlete to play against um, who, when your game plan is focused on containing him, because once he once he broke the containment, then it was just, are you going to really catch him? Yeah. So Michael Vick was definitely, I put Michael Vick, at, at, he'd be there at the top. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, really appreciate you coming in. You guys are up having. to some awesome stuff. Uh, really excited about that Brookline project. I know it's going to be an absolute grand slam for, for you, your partners, your investors. Um, you know, I look forward to continuing this conversation, um, not to spill the beans, but I think, you know, we may end up revisiting this with some of the other people mentioned in more of a roundtable type discussion yep. in the future on empowered returns. And, uh, just want to, again, thank you for being here. Always great Thanks to hang out me. and, uh, thank you uh, to our audience for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of empowered returns. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.